Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now, you know, also, additionally, maybe it's just me, I want to thank everyone who has bothered to chuckle, laugh, uh, snort, laugh through their nose, or occasionally guffaw at our jokes because comedy is tough. Hi, I'm Ben. Hey, I'm Noel, and I've never fancied myself a comedian. I always say I'm a purveyor of dad jokes, and I'm absolutely fine with that. But uh, straight seahorse teeth seems to be taking off online like wildfire, Ben. Mm, it's true, Noel. Did you already say your name? Yes. Sorry. I said, hey, Second time's a charm. Comedy's all about listening. You so, know what I mean? Oh, bad. Wow. <laughs> it's true. Shaming uh, me. You know what uh, is pretty cool, though? It's the official return <gasps> of Can We Get a Drum Roll, Please? He has to do his own drum roll. Super producer Casey Labouche Pegram. Oh, I know. Casey, uh, <laughs> when you were away, did you hear that we kind of developed a mythology for you based on our knowledge of your uh, French goings-ons? I, I caught wind of this, yeah. My, uh, my sources back here in the States were keeping me uh, informed this of, guy's uh, got of all relevant, you know, information. You're very tied in, very connected. <laughs> Spycraft, you know, you gotta, you gotta be, mm -hmm. you gotta have your feelers out there, so. I have a question, and you do not, please do not feel obligated to answer this, Casey. First off, this is, uh, I say this with great affection. Uh, there was there was a Casey-shaped hole in my heart when you were gone. <laughs> uh, now that you are aware, along with all of our fellow listeners, uh, about how your, uh, how your alleged double life in France was portrayed, uh, would you say that this is accurate, inaccurate, a seed of truth? 
I don't know. I, I don't really want to blow up my own spot like that. But, <laughs> you know, um, I, I'd say if it's maybe not true to the letter, it's certainly true to the spirit. So... All right. Okay. I can I can accept that. Well played. You've passed the test, my friend. Uh, we have, in honor of your return, uh, we have a, not a surprise for you, but a, a gift uh, for you and hopefully for all of our fellow listeners today. A while back, I think it was episode 108 or 109, we did a two-part show on the history of stand-up uh, with our pal Wayne Fetterman who is uh, who is an has an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of comedy and Casey we waited until you returned with your US identity to the studio to have Wayne Fetterman on the show today for you dude I know and I'm so psyched about this because yeah it was like a year ago that I was out and he was on and it was driving me up the wall because yeah I'm a big fan of the guy and a uh, big fan of the history of comedy and everything else. So, yeah, it's great to be here for this. Well, Wayne is an encyclopedic font of uh, comedy knowledge. His podcast, The History of Stand-Up, on the Podglomerate Network with his co-host Andrew Steven, um, is just a delight. And last time we had him on, we talked about um, Lenny Bruce and kind of some more inflammatory comics that sort of pushed the envelope of uh, free speech. George Carlin. George Carlin, all whatever, however many filthy words, unerrable words there are. And I think those are the only two explicit episodes of the show we've ever had – because we needed to be able to unbleep those words because they were very important to the story. It was about censorship. Uh, luckily, however we did with that episode, uh, Wayne was a charitable enough guy that he came back to hang out with us today. Not to mention that my mic was cut for like half of one of the episodes and we still salvaged it uh, with uh, crack our crack forensic audio team uh, and made it at least somewhat listenable. And also Wayne didn't think we were a bunch of hacks and agreed to come back on, which I really appreciate. And this episode is uh, fantastic. Another exploration of some envelope-pushing comedy, but in a slightly different way. So without having uh, without having deep dive demographics on how many of us are stand-up history buffs, uh, we'd like to introduce you to a man named Dick Gregory, a pioneer, uh, not just in the world of stand-up comedy, though he very much was, uh, but also in the world of civil rights and activism. So we, we hope that you enjoy our conversation here with Wayne about not just comedy— but about progressive actions in the United States, about civil rights in the 60s, about the uh, the oddly heartwarming actions of the often controversial Hugh Hefner. Let's get right to it. The rumors are true, ridiculous historians. We are joined once again with a friend of the show and host of the History of Stand-Up podcast, Wayne Fetterman. Friend of the American people, Wayne Fetterman. (laughs) Friend to our producer, Casey Peckham, Wayne Fetterman. How you doing, Wayne? I really would rather be speaking to Casey. That guy's incredible. <laughs> he may chime in, but you won't be able to hear him because he's not piped into the phone. But we will uh, relay any words of wisdom that he provides on his behalf. All right. Is he beaming right now because I'm talking about him? I am. He is. He, he says is. He says that he is. Yeah. His face is obscured by a giant computer monitor, so I can't speak oh, to that person. <laughs> but his it, voice in it. my ears says that he is. Okay. And he just leaned uh, in and gave a big smile. Fun story before we get started. And this is a true story, Wayne. 
uh, when we were putting together this episode, uh, Casey actually asked us to hold, and he traveled all the way back from Paris, France, uh, to be here today. Very special trip. It's true. It's all true. Yeah, let me just say that's very much on brand for Casey. (laughs) (laughs) So when we previously spoke together, we looked at the history of what we call stand-up today, not just as uh, the the craft or the uh, the actual performance that we think of with somebody standing with a microphone and an audience that hopefully loves them, but not always. We also talked about some of the bigger social questions that stand-up brings to the forefront. And sometimes those can be uncomfortable questions that people don't typically explore. Uh, now they, they laugh at it too, but sometimes they leave thinking. Uh, in our earlier conversations leading up to today's episode, uh, you started telling us about someone that was, I think, maybe vaguely familiar to us, but uh, someone we weren't super well acquainted with, with which is the uh, comedian and activist Dick Gregory. Uh, Wayne, could you tell us a little bit about, uh, just for our audience, who Dick Gregory is? Well, uh, Dick Gregory is famous in the history of stand-up for one specific thing, and that is he became the first major, and there's a caveat we can go into it, uh, comedian, African-American comedian, to play uh, white nightclubs. And how that happened, we will tell you in a a moment, I'm sure. But he was just, uh, you know, he was a funny kid. He was an athlete. He went to college. He was in the service, and then he— moved from St. Louis to Chicago to pursue his dream of becoming a stand-up comedian and could only play the black clubs in and around Chicago and was really struggling. Actually had a day job. He worked at the post office. He washed cars, all trying to uh, subsidize this career of his. So- and at this point, he's, he's married. He has, he has a lot of responsibility. So leading up to this big moment that we're going to get into that involves another kind of uh, historical luminary and controversial figure, uh, Dick Gregory was kind of doing his best to get into the kind of Chicago stand-up nightclub scene. And as you said, it wasn't a very welcoming scene for people of color. And I want to play this clip from American Masters on PBS where Gregory kind of describes this moment where he had to disarm a white audience at a club, I want to say in Alabama or something like that, um, where where someone calls him a racial slur and he has to take that opportunity to diffuse the situation rather than make a scene and, you know, put his career in jeopardy because these were ultimately his clients who he was there to entertain. So I think this really is a very teachable moment about the kind of climate that he was dealing with. So I go down there and I'm not thinking of anything. I didn't know at the time that a Negro is not permitted to work a white nightclub. That's in all of America. And I remember not knowing that. I used to practice, what do you do when some white person yells something negative out or embarrass you? And so I used to practice with my wife, but it didn't work because she was too nice and kind. And then one night, I don't know how I got this little job in this little hick town, little Mishawaka, Indiana, so you don't have to say no more. So I'm in Mishawaka, Indiana, and... And somebody said, get that nigga off the stage. Now, I was ready for it. And everybody just froze. And I said, white boy, call me, call me. I'll range his horse, call me Trigger. And everybody laughed. 
I'm out of it. There's no way you can feel sorry for me or embarrassed and laugh. So now I got him back. Now I'm off. You know, and the guy walked up and said, thank you. Jesus Christ. I wanted to hit him myself. And then the guy walks up and says, he's sorry. Hmm? Yeah, sorry. I almost pay you, man. I've been, I've been trying to figure out how to get to this. So, Wayne, uh, I wanted to know if, if you thought that maybe this was kind of if, – if he would have had to deal with similar situations like this leading up to this moment, and he almost describes it as like an aha moment where it's like, aha, this is how I can deal with this kind of heckling. Right. Well, he – I feel like Dick Gregory, especially at that time, had a very high emotional and comedic IQ on how to handle crowds. And it's remarkable considering – He's not that experienced other than basically playing these black clubs. But I just think he had a an innate sense of, one, how to perform in front of white audiences, and two, like how to diffuse these very volatile situations that I'm sure would come up all the time. Right, because as as you had mentioned before, he was, he was working, let's see, his comedic career began in what, the mid to late 1950s, is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly correct. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, African-American comedians on television or on the Ed Sullivan show. It was just a few. And once in a while, he'd see somebody. And there really wasn't a, a big circuit to play. There was big white nightclubs, which we called nightclubs at that time. <laughs> and But they wouldn't use uh, African-American comedians. Once in, a, once in a while, they would. But as a rule— that's not, you know, they'd have an act, you know, Sammy Davis could play there or something like that, or, you know, a, t- a, a team or a singer like Pearl Bailey or something like that all the time, but not not a stand-up. Um, I saw a really interesting clip with the comedian Paul Mooney, who was mm-hmm. another very outspoken comic, a, a contemporary, maybe a little younger than Gregory, but still kind of very much like in the same scene as Richard Pryor, so maybe like the next generation. But he talked about how in Hollywood, nothing could ever be too white but it was very easy to, for something to be too black. Um, and I think that's a really interesting distinction where, like, you talk about Sammy Davis Jr.'s and, like, performers of that caliber. They were a little more palatable to a white audience. But a comic like Gregory, who wasn't pulling any punches, that would be a little harder to take for these folks who maybe weren't used to seeing things like that. Is that would you say that's accurate? Yes. Mooney is 100% on, on like, people would go, okay, this is, t- this is too much for us. But again, Dick Gregory, I think, really learned how to thread the needle, almost like in a, um, a Jackie Robinson kind of way, that mm-hmm. he was like able to like take white audiences' expectations of what a black guy would talk about. And he talked about racial stuff all the time. That was the centerpiece of his act. But he did it in a very non-threatening, very human way, as opposed to an angry way. In that same NPR or PBS clip that we just heard, later on, he talks about that he was always respectful and that he wasn't bitter and that he wasn't angry. And this was all, I'm sure, underneath. But uh, that, again, I just feel like his emotional IQ was through the roof on how to handle these situations. So he wasn't like Paul Mooney, who would not, you know, I can't imagine... Paul Mooney handling that situation in that club the same way. It would be way more confrontational. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I I agree 100% with that statement about emotional IQ. 
Oh, recently, this this is not a plug. I actually do listen to the history of stand-up. Uh, oh. Yeah, season two started. And in season two, uh, you guys just had an episode come out recently about the Playboy circuit. And this was something that I, I didn't recognize. This episode, for anybody listening, is available now when our episode comes out. So give it a listen. This brings us to something that we'd, we'd love for you to explore with us here, uh, which is the interactions between uh, Dick Gregory and Hugh Hefner, the mastermind behind Playboy magazine, later the Playboy empire. Noel, this is something you were alluding to in the beginning, right? Yeah, for sure. And this Playboy club, I didn't realize, um, was a big source of, um, you know, entertainment and like Huge. massive, you know, um, opportunity for working comics. If you got a regular gig at the Playboy club, which was in Chicago at the time, um, that was a massive break for you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how Dick Gregory uh, literally kind of stumbled his way into this massive break. This story is fantastic. Well, this is, I assume, this is why I'm talking to you guys. This moment is very important in the big history of stand-up, and we covered it briefly in our first season and then went a little closer. And thank you for the kind words about the Playboy episode. <laughs> um, I appreciate I appreciate it. For anyone, it's the eight of us that are interested in the history of stand-up. So this is what happens. February 29th, 1960, the first Playboy Club opens. You're like, what does that mean, a Playboy Club? Mm -hmm. Well, in 53, real quickly, Hefner publishes this magazine, December 53, called Playboy. Marilyn Monroe's on the cover. There's no date stamped on it because it might have been the last one. And it basically has nudie pictures in it, uh, but nothing too graphic. It, I hope that's clear what that means. Yes, yeah. And then, like, articles, and uh, he was into literature. and So anyway, this magazine out of Chicago, this kid who had this dream, becomes this runaway success in the 50s. So he is, like, printing money by 57, 58. It's outselling Time magazine. It's outselling Esquire. It's, like, this incredible and has a big female readership as well. So he three things happen around this time. One, he does this huge indoor jazz festival called the Playboy Jazz Festival. Two, he buys a mansion in Chicago and th called the Playboy Mansion, which is like this party house. <laughs> and three, he opens the Playboy Club. And also four, there's another thing I'm forgetting. He starts this syndicated television show called Playboy's Penthouse, which is this black and white in the first two years. And you kind of get, he sort of presents like this party that you're invited to, so... People are sitting around, and they're drinking, and they're smoking, and there's a guy playing piano, and suddenly Sammy Davis comes in and sings, and then Lenny Bruce does some comedy. It's it's just a very <laughs> incredible, like, insight into, like, the world he wants to create, Hefner. And that was kind of like a variety show for him, right? Is that where we get that idea of him with the pipe and the smoking jacket and the whole thing? Yes, nine? yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not, it is a variety show, but not on a proscenium stage in like a living room. And then we let's go over to the dining room and then let's get some cocktails made over here and <laughs> let's listen to Cy Coleman play witchcraft. And then it's, it's just a great like promotional tool for the Playboy brand, which was, and we talk about it in the podcast that he was going for. Uh, sophistication, like that was his, like he thought, God, if I could make nudie picture, <laughs> you know, this part of a sophisticated lifestyle with high fidelity and sports cars and jazz music and great literature, that 
that, and that's what worked. You know what I mean? So it was like suddenly not a smutty behind the counter kind of embarrassing thing if you wanted to see uh, pictures of beautiful women. So that was his, that was another genius, Hugh Hefner's. So he's making he's kill, he's killing it, killing it during Eisenhower's administration. So he opens this Playboy Club February 29th, nineteen sixty, and the Playboy Club was. This you had to pay twenty five dollars and you got a key, literally a metal key. It later became a card, and that gave you access to the playbook. You were like a key member, and to serve the, these men, it was a men's only club, but you could bring women. They created the Playboy Bunny, which is different than the Playboy Playmate, which were in the magazine. And the bunny, how would you describe it? If let me, I'm going to throw it to you because I feel okay. like I'm talking too much. Yeah, well, <laughs> no. I mean, they were like cocktail waitresses or they were kind of uh, hostesses. They would receive the gentlemen and their dates when they'd come in, speak to them by name, make them feel very welcome and kind of cater to their their needs. It was similar to um, the idea, I guess, we would uh, an analog would be a hostess club in Japan. You know, these people are not necessarily what we would call sex workers. They hang out with you. They laugh at your jokes. They converse with with you, uh, there were also there was also a, uh, a uniform that changed over Course, time. Yeah, but that was like a, a, from what I remember. Thanks again, Dad. Uh, I'll admit if you're listening to the show that I did steal some of your Playboys. <laughs> Vintage. From, from what I remember with the advertisements they used to have in the magazine uh, for the bunnies, uh, there was it, it was like there there were even ears yep. at some point. A little yep. cotton tail. Yeah, and then maybe I, I feel like I'm remembering some kind of collar thing. I think yes, there was a collar a, with, yes, that's with right. a bow tie. Uh-huh. That's yep. correct. And an off-the-shoulder, almost kind of like bustier, leotard, yep. kind of onesie thing. Uh, yeah, and I believe they, they're wearing stockings and high heels sure. and some of them sure would have those cigarette carts that they mm-hmm. would carry and you know sell cigarettes and get people's drink orders and stuff but oh, and what, themed theme sometimes they would change it up a little bit for the holidays that makes sense yep you're good great you did great you did great <laughs> again i was i did i was never at the chicago club so i only know from the pictures and and such but yes that was so that was the vibe of this club again with the bow tie i guess sophistication and I'm using quotes around it <laughs> and because right. uh, these were just young women but the rule was you weren't allowed to touch or date these women he was very careful to make it not a quasi strip club or a quasi like you know you're going to hook up with these girls or anything like that and also they wanted to make it you know get as many women customers in there as well oh sure so part of this and this is an interesting. We didn't go into it. The guy who ran the food and drink concession for this club, and then eventually it became a circuit, was Arnie Morton, who eventually has these famous steakhouses all across the country. Wait, uh, wait, the Morton Steakhouse guy? Yes, yeah, same guy, same guy. So this is one of his earliest gigs. And they had this crazy pricing plan, uh, which was everything was a dollar. This is when it opened. Everything was a dollar fifty. A drink was a dollar fifty. Uh, your meal was a dollar fifty. A pack of cigarettes and a lighter with the Playboy logo on it was a dollar fifty. Like that was their kind of. Th- and it's like again with Hef, it's a runaway success. Like thousands and thousands of people are pouring or paying twenty five bucks to be a member. Everyone kind of got accepted, and then uh, and then could get part of this sophisticated lifestyle surrounded by these beautiful women. And part of the experience was there was always two rooms for show business. And those were usually a singer and a comic. So this is where Dick Gregory comes into the picture. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Now, at the time, it's, you know, Chicago has this big nightclub called the Shea Paris, which is run by the mob and is a white nightclub. That was like the big place you could play in Chicago. So acts from the Chez Paris, but also play the Playboy Club. And one of these acts in January 1961, so it's, I guess, 11 months later, uh, is named Professor Irwin Corey. Are you, does that name ring a bell to any, either of you? That's, I, I got to no, be honest. Not yeah, right off, no. Not to me, not right now. Okay, he was a very curious, kind of almost experimental avant-garde comedian who pretended to be Professor and then would give lectures on different topics in a very crazed kind of. Do you remember like the way Einstein had his hair all crazy? Yeah, like yeah, that? yeah, yeah. That was that was him. So Erwin <laughs> Corey, for some reason, is like, you know, I don't want to work seven days a week. I don't want to work Monday through Sunday. Can I get Sunday off? You know, I appreciate this gig you're giving me here at the Playboy Club, but um, I don't want to do it. So half who had seen Dick Gregory, he was the host of this club called the Robert Show Club, which is a black club in Chicago, and said, well, why don't we give this kid a, a chance for $50? 
So he hired him that night, and there were some Southern people in the crowd, and Dick Gregory got there late. It was snowing, gets on stage, and just kills it. Like, all of his instincts are 100% correct on how to handle these crowds, how to talk about race, how to talk about the fact that he had been in the South and he did the joke, you know, I spent four weeks there one night or that kind of thing and and kills it. <laughs> and then immediately like, oh, let's hire this guy. And in a way, that's the first time uh, African-American comedian had been hired in a white nightclub with a couple exceptions. Um, but that, yeah, but that was a big thing. But there's more to the story. Can I keep going? Oh, yeah, please, yeah, go please. We're on the edge of our seats here, actually. So Dick Gregory starts... You know, he had never heard of making $50 a night times seven. Like, that was like out of – it was mind-blowing to him that he could be making this much money doing comedy. And word spreads quickly about this kid who is doing great at the Playboy Club. So the New York Times luckily, like, writes a review of it and then Time Magazine. And this is where the story gets really interesting to me. Dick Gregory's dream was to be on The Tonight Show with – Jack Parr. That was the big break. That He was the Carson before Carson. Of course. So um, he was friends with this singer named Billy Eckstein, another guy you're not going to know, but <laughs> All right. a famous 40s, 50s singer. And Billy was like, I don't know if you noticed this, whenever there's a black comedian on Jack Parr, he lets them do their act and that would usually be like like an impressionist, like he had George Kirby on, that kind of thing. But he would never bring him over to the couch to sit down like he's a just a normal American person. Well, and in general, getting brought over to the couch is the dream of any comic doing the late show, doing a late show like that. Yeah, yeah. No question. No question. No question. But when this Time magazine article hits, Jack Parr, producer, calls Dick Gregory and is like, We'd love to have you on the show. And he's like, I'm not going to do on the show unless you let me sit down and talk to Jack Parr. Because he had never even thought of this. He never realized until Billy Eckstein pointed it out to him that this was a thing that Jack Parr was doing, whether consciously or unconsciously. So the producer was like, well, you know, that's not the way it works. You do a set. If it goes well, you might come back and do another set. He's like, well, then I'm not doing your show. And then well, apparently a couple a day later, the producer's like, fine. You can do the show, and we'll talk to you. And so, again, I keep going back to this emotional IQ of how to handle this situation mm -hmm. and parlaying what little – I mean, you can imagine, this is he's just playing the Playboy Club. What little power he had to uh, get what he wanted, and that was also a breakthrough moment. And then he became like, you know, a hero, and that's the moment. That's why we're talking on this to you right now, like that moment. And then – Everything changed from there. I have a question before, because, yes, everything changes from there, but there, there's one question I wanted to clarify here, especially with the with uh, the Tonight Show with Jack Parr. Uh, it sounds like there was a, an emotional calculation on his part, or at least some very clever diplomacy, because didn't they invite him more than once and eventually, like, Parr finally called him, right? That's that's the thing that got me about it because— Oh, is there more to that? That might be right. You're saying that that before, like, Parr just wanting him on the show, eventually Parr calls him personally, and he says to Jack Parr, who he idolized, 
I'm not going to do the show unless you have me on. Is that correct? That's what that's what uh, that's what I had heard. I wanted to see that source because to me, if that's if that's what happens, what's fascinating about that is that it gets to a point where it's kind of leveraging maybe the ego of the host of the show because they're like, you know, I'm this huge show. What, this guy's too good? Mm-hmm. What gives, you know? Yeah, I, I, you know, I will look into that because I did. we didn't go into, we just more were talking about the club. And I do know that he turned down the show. I don't remember that Jack Parr himself called, but that could be absolutely correct. And mm. if that is, I mean, there's also, if you think about it, there was like this thing about black people and being pushy and uppity and all like that was like a, a way to like marginalize a lot of those guys. So hmm. I like that he was willing to risk that all of that to sit down on the couch with Parr. And Parr ended up loving him and having on the show numerous times. And that, as we like to say on our show, blew open the gates to having uh, African Americans not only on the show, but older African Americans finally getting a shot on television and stuff. Well, we've heard Dick Gregory um, later in his life describing this period, um, but we haven't heard any of his comedy. And uh, I think we should hear a little moment of of one of the bits that might have been something he would have performed on the Jack Parr show. You know, I feel so sorry for Willie. I hate to see any baseball player having troubles. That's a great sport for my people. That is the only sport in the world where a Negro can shake a stick at a white man and won't start no ride. Of course, now, don't get me wrong now. We're doing all right. Now, at the rate we're going 10 years from now, you might have to be my color to get a job. <laughs> get me right, I'll get in there and raise taxes on you. <laughs> I mean, now, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't mind paying my income tax if I knew it was going to a friendly country. <laughs> and we have a lot of racial prejudice up north, but we're so clever with it. Take my hometown, Chicago. I mean, you can't see it just, just going in there. When Negroes in Chicago move into one large area and it looked like we might control the votes, they don't say anything to us. They have a slum clearance. <laughs> you do the same thing on the West Coast, but you call it freeways. So what we've done here so far is trace this guy's evolution to the gates. And then when they were blown open, as you said, he he could have, if we want to speculate, he could have done what some people decide to do when they're successful in entertainment and just stayed in that lane and just, you know, worked on comedy and, and honed his craft and then eventually, you know, retired or just exclusively gone on to do Comedy Central Roast or something. But he took it a step further. Uh, and, and you mentioned this earlier, Wayne, when you say everything changed. So so what changed exactly? What was uh, Dick Gregory's next phase in life? Well, two things. When I say that everything changed, I meant that everything changed in, in stand-up in that now Americans, club owners, TV bookers were interested in the voices of African-American comedians. Ah. That's what I meant by everything changed. Mm. So you you now had like suddenly Nipsey Russell is on television a lot more and, uh, you know, Slappy White. And these older comedians like uh, Moms Mabley and Pig Meat Markham, like suddenly they have a resurgence because people are kind of curious about this world of comedy. And, and there's, uh, you know, this underground world of dirty records with, you know, Red Fox and LaWanda Page and all of those people. So 
it's just a, it's like kind of a like if you go to the African American Museum at the Smithsonian and they show you the clips of the comedians from that era, they're all post. 1960 like they're all post 1961 when he broke through like they're all and a lot of people were getting sets and jobs so it was just a it was a bit of a a great kind of resurgence and then through those doors walks flip wilson and bill cosby and then richard pryor mitchell pryor makes his television debut in 1964 that's only three years after this moment it's like, it's a real, like, okay, now we're on, everything's changed, and comedians and audiences are ready to accept, as Dick Gregory liked to say, uh, just uh, one person talking flat-footed on stage to a white crowd. And then what, uh, what were, like, he continued to work as a comic, right, to great yes, acclaim? Yeah, he was suddenly making a lot of money. He hired a couple writers to help him create more material because he was really in demand. He put out records. He's like, he's a thing. (laughs) Dick Gregory is a thing. And then he gets very involved with the civil rights movement, which don't forget. I mean, this is before the uh, Voting Rights Act and before the Housing Act and all of that. So this is before Martin Luther King in 1963 makes the big speech. So he starts marching with uh, Martin Luther King and making speeches and raising money. And what happens is he starts canceling nightclub dates and basically says, like, look, I can do these jokes and I can do these jokes these guys wrote for me and this is all great, but there's a bigger wave that I'm involved with now. And that basically kind of like marginalized his stand-up act and made him this civil rights icon at the at the time. So we basically canceled tens of thousands of dollars worth of gigs so he could be involved with this movement and would talk about it. And then he became sort of identified with that. And because he was doing that, opened the door again for like the Cosbys and Flip Wilson and, you know, Pryor and all of those gentlemen. But then he essentially, you know, so those floodgates were open. All those folks stepped in to kind of fill that vacuum. And then he kind of walked away from this career in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. maybe not entirely, but he clearly had bigger fish to fry. Um, he had right, you right, know, right. higher priorities, a higher calling, you could say. No question, no question. And that really motivated him very much. And then I think in a way it hurt his career, his stand-up career. And I also, for some reason, I just don't know if he was that dedicated to stand-up once he had sort of cracked this code and was like, okay, I can do this and... I can release these albums. I can make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And where I used to make, you know, $5 doing this, this gig. And he just, he was very much motivated in racial equality, which is, I could understand, I could understand that, which, which I'm sure what he had to endure growing up in that time period. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. 
kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. We followed some of his work in in this field, in, in the civil rights movement. Uh, he also was advocating for the rights of Native Americans and uh, for mm-hmm. gender equality. Uh, we, we found a couple of stories one that one that really stood out was uh, he even got the attention of J. Edgar Hoover at one point when he ran for president in 1968, which I, I had no idea he actually ran for president. Uh, but the rumor is from documents that came out later that J. Edgar Hoover considered Dick Gregory such a threat that he ordered the Chicago office of the FBI to contact the mob uh, to neutralize yeah, quote unquote neutralize quote, quote unquote, whatever yeah. whatever that means. Yeah, maybe maybe it's something less sinister to neutralize him during that race. And I I guess I wanted to ask you, um, given what you said earlier about the biggest comedy club or white nightclub in Chicago being run by the mob, was the mob still really active in Chicago and and the comedy scene in the in the sixties? Yeah. I mean, it was starting to fade away a little bit as these other rooms opened up. But basically, the nightclub era, which started right, you know, when after the end of Prohibition and the and vaudeville dropping, a lot of nightclubs across the United States, South, North, Southwest, Northwest, were mob-run organizations. One of the most famous in New York was a room called uh, the Copacabana, which you you know you see in these. Uh, Scorsese movies all the time, but that was they had the biggest headliners, Martin Lewis, and those guys would perform there. Sammy Davis with the Will Maston Trio, and that, those were all mob-run 
And then Mob ran, obviously, Las Vegas mm-hmm. and then had their hooks deeply into uh, Miami, which was also this big scene. I mean, I guess the only place the Mob didn't really run too much was the uh, the Borscht Belt up in the mountains of the Adirondacks, upstate New York, where kind of like Jewish comedians were performed there during the summers. Let's move on really quickly to a very important event um, in the Freedom Summer, or the 1964 Freedom Summer in Mississippi, um, where all these marches took place. This is a very big um, kind of high-water mark point for the civil rights movement. Uh, There is a bombing of a church called the Mount Zion Church, and three young men are sent to investigate it, uh, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, and they do not come back alive. They are murdered by members of the Ku Klux Klan and uh, deputies. Deputy Sheriff Cecil Ray Price. This is all proven, um, who is also a Klansman. And basically, Dick Gregory um, goes there, confronts the sheriff, and sticks his finger in his face and says, I know you did this, and we're going to pin it on you. And he reaches out to Hugh Hefner, who puts up $25,000 of 1964 money, which is no Trump change, for a reward for anyone that can lead to the arrest or proof that these men had something to do with it and to find the bodies. Um, There is conjecture that the FBI already knew where the bodies were. They just didn't want to create a giant storm, um, and so they kept quiet. And essentially, Gregory, with the help of his friend Hugh Hefner— took these men to task, and uh, everyone essentially, I mean, the, the the degrees to which they were punished, you could kind of argue were not nearly fitting the crime, but they were exposed. Um, and that brings us around to Hefner kind of, I don't know, you think of him as this kind of uh, impresario of smut or something like that. But as you said, he was very interested. He was very progressive. He was all about literature and good writing. And people joke about, oh, I only read Playboy for the articles. But there's there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, some of the greatest writers of, of all time have gotten their start writing shorts for Playboy or articles or, or having short stories published. So it absolutely has a place in that kind of canon. Um, and uh, more recently, um, Gregory, uh, unfortunately, we, we lost uh, several years ago, but near the end of his life, he participated in a roast of Hugh Hefner, and he had a really interesting quote. At 2001, right, during the roast of Hugh Hefner, uh, he he actually, he went beyond the, the typical insult stuff, right? And uh, I think this is what, this is what you had mentioned earlier, Wayne, where he says, you had a courage when no one was bringing in blacks and minorities and let you stand flat-footed in America and just talk. You brought me in. You didn't give me a lecture. You gave me no instructions. I come here tonight not to roast you, but to say that had you not had the guts back then, we black comics that the world has been able to look at and understand our genius, we would be in some pot roasting in debt knowing we were never going to make it. And I have to ask, because that's such a powerful mm-hmm. statement. It is. Yeah, were, to this day. Yeah. yeah. Were they, like, friends past the business stuff? Past, like, the giving the start? Because that that's the that's a very personal, sincere statement. Did they interact throughout the throughout his career in activism as well as comedy? Well, I, I, I know this. I know in 1962... Uh, when Lenny Bruce got arrested at the Gate of Horn, which was this little club also in Chicago that Hef put up his bail money and just felt like what Bruce is trying to do with language, I'm trying to do with, uh, you know, with literature here, like, Mm -hmm. like show 
use satire and language and cartoons to sort of elevate this art, not only the humor, but the conversation about America in general. So I know he's always been an activist in that. I don't know how close they were through the years. I know that there's dozens of Dick Gregory interviews where he thanks Hugh Hefner for having the courage to put him on that stage and or the foresight to put him on that stage. So I know he was like extremely grateful. Obviously, what happens is, I hate to say this, the Playboy clubs were basically like Dick Gregory immediately got bigger than the Playboy clubs, which was became the circuit. There was like 20 of them all over the United States, wow. Phoenix, St. Louis, uh, you know. So Miami, New Orleans, Boston, New York. So he was already too big to play the Playboy circuit. So um, <laughs> I don't know if that was a, uh, a thing between the two of them. I'm not sure. But I, I've heard Dick Gregory numerous times thank Hugh Hefner for that moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he really did kind of go out on a limb when he, you know, he did kind of have the world, you know, on a platter at that point because of, like you said, the Playboy magazine just printing money and having kind of having a sense that he was untouchable. And that's really important. But also any other person could have done something completely different with that kind of success and that kind of power. And he instead took a chance and went out on a limb when he didn't have to. And uh, without that moment, Dick Gregory wouldn't have had the platform to affect such social change that he did, not to mention blowing the doors wide open for black comics, you know, around the world. Yeah, it's a, it's an incredible story. And it all happens in this, you know, in this little club in Chicago, in the middle of winter, January 1961. There's a snowstorm and he takes a bus to the gig and he gets off on the wrong stop. The whole story is just crap. So he's running through the snow and he's slipping and he's never been to the Playboy Club. So he doesn't know exactly where it is. And then he gets there and, uh, yeah, gets on on stage and uh, does his thing. As you just reflect on, like, his use of language and the casualness of his performance, and he is just like, this is his moment, and he absolutely embraces it. And speaking of of thanking and speaking of moments, you know, we can can thank— Hugh Hefner the way that Dick Gregory did, but we also have to admit, you know, this wouldn't have been near as big a moment had Dick Gregory not been such a talented writer, performer, and comic, so I don't want to get away from how just objectively good the guy is. And, and also so savvy. I think it's it's not to be um, overlooked that he wasn't rolling over when he kind of did these maybe a little bit more palatable performances for white audiences. He was being smart. He was reading the room in a way that was able to, like, keep him in the game. And, you know, as his comedy, you know, progressed, I guess, or as his career progressed and he, had, he was able to take more risks, um, you know, he was very outspoken about race and politics and all of that, even in his acts. No question. Again, it goes back to what we were speaking about earlier about you said savvy. I said, you know, emotional IQ. Like he just, I felt like he had a a really heightened level of like how to play these situations. And he had seen, if I'm not mistaken, sometimes they would have like, uh, I don't know, I don't know if it was Sammy Davis at this Robert Show Club and he watched uh, Nipsey Russell play a crowd, and sometimes they would get white crowds coming into the Robert Show Club, which was a black club, but they would let white people in, obviously. So I think he had seen some other black comedians like 
worked the room and he's like, okay, I think I know how to crack this this code. I think I know the combination uh, that that'll that'll make it work. So this this is a watershed pivotal moment uh, in in comedy and in American society overall. Uh, you know, longtime listeners know one thing that uh, that I never shy away from, and Noel, I don't think you shy away from it either, is admitting when we need to know more about something. So thank you so much, Wayne Fetterman, for introducing uh, not just us, but our audience to Dick Gregory and uh, talking to us, even though you established pretty early on in today's episode that you would always rather be talking to Casey. That's fair. <laughs> we, we feel the same way, <laughs> trust me. I want to really quick, I just tell a very, very short story. I uh, had uh, an interesting privilege to, um, I was a reporter for public radio when I lived in Augusta, Georgia, and uh, I got to cover the funeral of James Brown. And uh, Dick Gregory actually spoke and, and gave a eulogy at James Brown's funeral, and I was not aware of him, and that was the very first first time I'd ever heard of this man, uh, and I really thought of him much more, all the research I did, which wasn't much, um, that he was much more of an activist. So the, hearing this completed part of his story is really fascinating, but he gave a really powerful speech at James Brown's funeral. Um, it was a, it was really interesting to see him kind of in the flesh, and a really fascinating man. Uh, very, very um, glad to know more about him. So thank you, Wayne, for uh, for hipping us to, to this story. Well, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, Wayne, at this point, people people have heard us uh, mention uh, your podcast uh, that you do with your co-host, Andrew Stephen. I just want to let everybody know that the History of Stand-Up Season 2 is, is coming out now as we speak. It hasn't all been released yet, though, right? That is correct. We are still editing, interviewing people, putting things together for this season. Yeah. So uh, the last the last episode I listened to, if you're interested in hearing more about the Playboy Circuit, is season two, episode two, which came out uh, just a few days ago uh, as we record this, and it explores the the story of Hugh Hefner and Playboy magazine and how they became. This this is a quote here uh, from your show, Wayne. How they became uh, unlikely champions for an era of comedy between nightclubs and the comedy boom. That's exactly. I can't believe I came up with something that articulate. That's great. That's, that's <laughs> you, very succinct. You done good. It. You done good, Wayne. It's a great show. Um, where can folks uh, find that? Um, what's the best way to 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 pull that up? I the classic wherever you get your podcast, whether it's you know on iTunes or Stitcher. I'm not sure. Wherever it's it's everywhere. It's there. It's, everywhere. Just, it's out there. Just Google yeah, it. You, yeah, yeah. It's easy to get. It's easy to get. And thank you very much for listening to it i um you know i this is a pa i'm passionate about this but i i just don't know how many people are really interested in the history of stand-up as opposed to stand-ups now you know that you know talk about their careers and stuff i've actually i've been keeping note here i'll i'll confess there were a couple of older comics that you had mentioned uh, in the course of today's episode where I was writing them down. I was like, oh, wait, I've got to look that guy up. i got to see if I can hear something. Uh, so I've got some homework today, uh, and I'll, I'll probably be posting uh, some some stuff about this on our own Ridiculous History Facebook page or Instagram. You can you can find us there. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Uh, Wayne, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to volunteer you. It looks like you are also available on Twitter, at Fetterman. Correct. 
And if you want to find me and Ben individually, um, we keep up a pretty decent Instagram profile. I am at How Now Noel Brown. And you can see me getting kicked into and out of various countries uh, at Ben Bolin. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Don't make fun of me. I love it. I love it. Uh, So that is our show, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'd love to hear your take and some of your favorite comics throughout history, right? Absolutely. Thanks to super producer Casey Pegram. Thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Big thanks to Christopher Hasiotis, who is here in spirit. Uh, And Jonathan Strickland, who, you know... uh, he can take a long walk off a short pier. Big thanks to Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. I know you and I don't see eye to eye on that. And uh, big thanks to Wayne, and thank you so much, folks, for listening. We'll see you next time. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.